Welcome to CinemaScope, a new podcast from True Story FM. Hi, I'm Andy Nelson, co-host of the Next Real Film podcast and Movies We Like. As a passionate movie lover, I've always relished exploring the diverse landscape of cinema. And when you look closer at the taxonomy of genres, subgenres, and film movements, you see an intricate web of interconnections and influences. This complex cinematic family tree spans only 125 years. So how did styles as diverse as the French New Wave, New Queer Cinema, and Ozploitation emerge? What cultural, economic, and technological forces sculpted these styles? And what hidden threads unite them all as part of the same fantastic art form? Those questions sent me on a journey to explore each style and trace their impacts, all to better understand the bridges between different styles. And that led me here to CinemaScope. In each episode, I'll be exploring one particular genre, subgenre, or film movement in depth, inviting expert guests to help us all better understand what defines that style, how it came to be, and what branches it, in turn, influenced on this big cinematic family tree. For example, how did German Expressionism shape American film noir? What's the difference between Westerns, Spaghetti Westerns, and Brazilian Nordesterns? We'll examine the economic and socio-political forces that birthed categories like black exploitation, and we'll spotlight visionary films and directors key to the evolution of different styles. So join me as we explore the complex forces that shape film's evolution and appreciate the diverse creativity possible in its relatively brief history. Let Cinemascope be your guide to understanding this art form we cherish how its genres blend, bounce off each other, and advance a rich tapestry of storytelling innovation. Together, we'll gain a deeper appreciation for this wondrous, shape-shifting medium. Our journey begins soon. Be part of this adventure by subscribing to CinemaScope today. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends... Our conversation begins. The jerk is over. Let's hoof it to St. Louis. In the history of motion pictures, only a select few performers have become immortalized by the roles they have portrayed. Consider the vamp, the champ, the tramp. And now the most perfect casting of all, Steve Martin, the jerk. It was never easy for me. I was born a poor black child. Meet Naven Johnson. He's poor. You mean I'm gonna stay this color? And he's eager. This is the kind of music that tells me to go out there and be somebody! But Naven... Let him go. Traveling down that lonely road, seeking fortune. Actual live weight guessing. Take a chance and win something! Finding fame. The new phone book's here! The new phone book's here! All right, man. We're doing Steve Martin. We, we started are doing with the jerk. Steve Martin. Starting at the beginning. Yeah. 1979. The jerk. Why uh, did we why did we decide to do okay, a few questions for you. Why did we decide to do Steve Martin? And why did we specifically just say, let's focus on his early career? Do you recall? Well, I okay. No, I don't. I'll be honest. <laughs> I, don't I think it's just one of those I things like we were just, just like, that sounds like a good saying, idea. Yeah, we were just in a habit of saying, let's do the early part of stuff. 
you know, let's see where it starts. And, and and I was really fascinated by that because I was a huge fan of Steve Martin before, you know, he was still doing stand-up, right? And that transition from SNL and his his albums, like I had the King Tut album and, um, you know, he it was a huge part of my childhood. And my memory of these movies, these early Steve Martin movies were so formative of my, you know, my early uh, ability to talk to people at parties and feel funny. Most of that was related to quoting Steve Martin stuff. And so uh, that I, I feel like that was formative in my personality. And I was really curious personally to to go back and watch these movies and see how well they hold up. And if I was still able to connect to them, you know, I, I feel like there was a lot of uh, there are so many movies that you try to watch now and they they just they maybe are representative of the year in which they were made the period in which they were made but they're they're not representative of of today and i wanted to see if steve martin would suffer any of that yeah it'll be interesting especially because this particular series is also really looking at uh you know uh, two-thirds of it is the collaborative efforts of carl carl reiner working right. with steve martin you know we've got all four of their films on this list and just because they happen to be you know four of the uh six early films that steve martin did so mm -hmm. that will be another interesting element to see uh how that relationship uh if we get any sense that that relationship is shaping anything i know carl reiner obviously has had a uh, a longer career uh having been around a while before steve martin kind of came into the scene and and uh you know quite a bit of comedy under his belt what was he bringing to the table in uh, in the relationships in uh, in these films yeah and, and in particular this film the, to hear steve martin talk about it i think it's fascinating that he uh, he recalls reiner's gift of uh, bringing the shape and the heart of the movie so insofar as this movie has shape and heart it is credited to reiner and <laughs> martin brings the jokes right and and the gags right. and right, and right. so to i'm curious how that changes how they end up talking to, uh, about one another in relationship to uh, you know to their work together in movies going forward as martin learns how to make movies right especially because it's not like you know you know something brought them together for this particular film it's not like they both like the studio paired them and it worked right. it, martin actually had an opportunity because of some success with his comedy and uh, his you know he had kind of been uh, he started writing this project for paramount and then uh when the president of paramount moved over to universal he took the project with him and and said martin you can pick the director you want to work with and martin is the one who picked carl reiner because of what he had brought to the dick van dyke show mm -hmm. and so uh, so that's so it's not like Reiner read this script and was like, I've got to make this. It's just like, that's kind of how he brought, was, came onto this. And that kind of uh, kind of created this relationship. So uh, it'll be interesting to see, to, to explore over this series. You had not seen this? Correct. I had never seen this. But this is one of those films with some incredibly iconic comedy moments that mm -hmm. I feel like everybody kind of knows. It's kind of yeah, just the cultural right. moments of this film. You know, I don't need anything except this ashtray, yeah, you know, like that right. sort of thing. And 
you know, I was born a poor black child. And you know, yeah. there are a number of things throughout this film that are... He hates the cans. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, well, okay. So I guess I should uh, give you the floor then. Um, insofar as you hadn't seen it, but you'd seen it. Uh, now that you've seen it, how did it stand up as a as a piece for you? Well, I will be curious to uh, hear your perspective as well as somebody who has seen it, but maybe not in a while and how well it holds up over time. This is one of those tricky films that I feel like in the world of comedy, it taps into kind of a specific time and place in, in a film like this. And it also taps into the viewer and when the audience comes to it. And if the audience comes to it at the right age or perhaps at the right time when the film is um, is at its peak, you're going to have a lot more connection with it. Not having had any of that and watching it, you know, just a you know, week ago or so um, for my first time. I really felt like, you know, it had some of those comedy moments that I said earlier, you know, there's a reason that they kind of stand out as comedy moments because they, you know, they're they're pretty clever and pretty funny. But there's also just a lot of stuff that I'm like, eh, I don't know if this really works that much anymore. It feels like shtick. And it, uh, you know, it ends up feeling kind of like what we talked about when we were looking at uh, Robin Hood Men in Tights with Mel Brooks and just kind of the idea of, you know, uh, quantity over quality. I feel like there are just so many jokes that were thrown in here, hoping that, you know, you'd get a laugh on, uh, you know, four out of, uh, or one out of five or something like that, you know? So it was a, a little bit of a rough watch. I'm sorry to hear that. I, uh, it, and yet uh, it's predictable as I'm watching it and I'm recognizing all of those moments, those comedy moments that just don't quite land anymore, even to me, and yet I'm still laughing at them. I recognize that the the gift of this movie to me is the fact that I did see it when I was so young, and it was so funny and so resonant in my family as a source of jokes that um, that 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 is why I can still turn to this movie and and find it charming and find uh, you know our principal protagonist here find him so charming because he's pretty dumb and uh, there there are just things about him that uh, that I find sweet and innocent and. Uh, really attractive. There's a great sort of affinity to him. And the fact that Steve Martin is such a, a weird, like, cast for himself to play this role like he's just he doesn't fit in in the character it's like the the character of Navin Johnson doesn't the skin doesn't really fit around a Steve Martin shape and all of that awkwardness I think makes for a, a really weirdly uh charming character for me and and so I know most of it is it's it's a it's out of time it's out of date uh, for me, I still have a lot of heart for it. Yeah, and and I think I'm going to, you know, largely say I get it. I can see why this is something that people are drawn to. It has its it has its fun moments, and I mean, I've got friends who, you know, they they just start talking about this, and they can laugh themselves silly just describing scenes to me. And you know, I I have those movies too, and so yeah. I, I yeah. don't fault anybody for 
for loving this one. Um, but yeah, I just, I feel like if somebody's just now picking it up and giving, going to give it a try, they might struggle a little more. Yeah. Yeah. I recognize that. So let's start with, uh, can we start with some of the things that do work for you? Like let's start on a high <laughs> before we start breaking it down. Well, sure. Before we do, I, I wanted to, uh, kind of throw this at you because, I mean, this is the film that really kind of made Steve Martin a movie star, you know, before he was just the mm-hmm. comedy. And, uh, you know, in terms of comedians breaking into film, I mean, do you feel like that uh, this represented him and what he would do? And and how does it stand as a way to kind of mark him? Uh, yeah, I, I actually do um, have some thoughts on this because I, I feel like 1979, like there was a there was a period here. At which, um, you know, becoming a big star was based on the weird stuff that you did. Like, how willing were you to do the the weird stuff to be strange looking, to have strange body type, to be? And Steve Martin was awkward and tall and skinny. And in this movie, he takes his shirt off and has hair on his back for crying out loud. He's a human man. And uh, but all of, <laughs> it was the seventies. It was the seventies. That's right. Uh, but but all of this stuff sort of sets him apart from and and uh, allows him to to kind of be the goofy guy you know the wild and crazy guy and uh, and uh, showcase you know the the weird voice and the, and the stuff like why would this be funny and I think much of the same can be said for comedians even today right I mean as you as you look at at uh, Jack Black and and um, uh, Danny DeVito and I mean all, all of these guys who are now in the, you know the Jumanji franchise like they became famous doing being the character that was that was either absolutely within type when you look at Danny DeVito and his roles in, in like Taxi and and now he seems like he's come full circle with Always Sunny uh, in Philadelphia, um, Jack Black and his work, like I, all of these things, I think really uh, you you see that that becoming famous in comedy is is different than becoming famous as you know in action uh, or something i i can totally see how jim carrey and ace ventura jim Kurt carrey oh man absolutely so in many respects i think you know steve martin may have may have been one uh to set the type for becoming fam- famous by you know doing weird stuff in the 70s for the next you know two or three decades yeah, and I think he and Robin Williams also is another oh, one absolutely. in that same era, yeah. you know, with Mork and Mindy and just kind of that whole shtick that he had there, kind of that crazy spaceman sort of thing. Yeah. I I think that's a a pretty good way to kind of describe it, because I certainly think that Steve Martin um does the kind of the dumb pretty well. You know, I think I think that that's something that that he can uh, he can pull off and it and it works. Mm-hmm. Um, what I think I find interesting about him is I always feel like there's a much bigger brain behind Steve Martin yes. than m- most of his characters. Yes, like he he feels so much smarter, and so when he's playing somebody like we have here with Naven, uh, it just he. It's a tricky line because I I sometimes struggle when he's playing somebody who's so stupid and I know that he's just not. And because I, I, I'm like, okay, I think he's mostly convincing me that he is this character, but I still feel like there's a little bit of the smart Steve Martin coming through. Yeah. And th- that's a line that I 
I do find I, I I don't know if I say I struggle with, but it's something that I I recognize with him in his performances because I could even say I can see that line sometimes, like in something like Three Amigos, which for me is uh, a film like The Jerk, something that I acknowledge it may have its problems, but I completely love. I totally love that film. You know, I, I as as I bring up uh, Jumanji, Kevin Hart is another one of those guys. Like he's one of those guys who sure. has made a career of being a small, whiny, like comedic guy. But that guy is he's a a, a, a force. He's a, a absolute powerhouse. When you hear him speak, like he is an amazing, uh, uh, you know, businessman in this world of comedy. That is Steve Martin, and the way he has used that part of himself to transcend. All of his parts, uh, and and you know, move into so many different sort of careers. Uh, I think is is fascinating. Yeah, very true. I mean, uh, you know, he certainly is a jack of all trades with what he does as far as the comedy and the the writing and the acting and the uh, you know being uh, an instrument or playing various instruments in. Uh, solo and in bands and stuff. I mean, he's kind of all over the place and it's amazing what he pulls off. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, I, I think that there is a lot going on with Steve Martin. And I guess, I guess that does bring us to the movie now yeah. as far as what's going on with this particular movie. And, because uh, I mean, Steve Martin is, you know, one of the credited writers on the film and, and how well does it end up playing i think you made an, a, a good point uh, early on when you start talking about sort of the the jokes like just jamming in jokes per minute and in fact martin actually says uh, you know i was watching an afi presentation that he he stood up and and was introducing the movie for an afi uh, screening of it and he said you know when we wrote this movie uh our goal was a joke a page and I see that as a novice screenwriter, as somebody like that. I, I feel like that would be a great goal for me if I were writing a comedy, you know, like ha not having great experience writing and producing many comedic films. Uh, I, I think having a target is great. And it sort of feels like a joke a page. Like it feels like each page, every minute, every minute and a half, two minutes, you're in a new scenario or a new skit. And and it's it's just sort of a set of sketches moving Naven through the world. And if you connect with Naven, I, I feel like that can be a really fun way to watch his exploration. If you don't, it feels like a joke a page. It's just like shoehorned in. I don't know. Am I am I right, relating right. to you at all? Oh, no, totally. I mean, it's like for every joke that worked, like when he's reading the letter that got wet and he's, his, <laughs> his reading gets worse and worse as the, as the letters get uh, more and more difficult to read as they disappear. Yeah. That was really funny. Like, I, I thought that was actually a funny bit. And then there's the part where he hooks the, you know, the chain to the church uh, hose spigot and the the uh, criminals drive off, towing off a huge chunk of the church building. That one didn't work for me as well. You know, isn't it so, funny it, though? Talk about that one because I'm I am curious your perspective on why that didn't work. It didn't work for me either. Why didn't it work for you? Ah, uh, it just I, it, it just seems so over the top. It's like such an enormous. Uh, completely unbelievable joke, you know. I mean, and it's a it's a physical gag, and we saw 
almost the same thing happen, if I recall, in Robin Hood Men in Tights, where a huge building like gets rolled away. Didn't yeah, we? In the, I feel like in the, the, yeah, the village, the flaming village, I think something like that. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. So it's, it was one of those jokes that I'm like, it felt like something that probably worked back in Carl Reiner's day when he was working on some of the old TV stuff that he was a part of, you know, it kind of an, an older world joke that, that still, people kept trying to do oh it totally felt like carol burnett or show of shows like absolutely exactly and something that it just it felt it ended up feeling like a really played out joke that was just too unbelievable to happen yet here it was happening again it's like you know it's just one of those jokes yeah yeah, I, I think so, so too. I, I it was know. almost too big for the movie. Those big physical gags, they stand out for me now as gags that were too big for the story of this dumb guy, right? Of this guy who has a lot of heart and not a lot of brain. And it, it felt like the jokes that were closer to him, the jokes that were more about him, you know, reading the wet letter or, um, you know, after the this wonderful song, uh, you know, as as Bernadette Peters is, uh, you, you know, he reaches up and says he wants to give her a kiss through the coronet, but he didn't want to get spit on him. On him, uh, all of those little jokes, those intimate character jokes, those play so well for me. And when they get big and broad, uh, they they take me out of the movie. Yeah, that's very true. You know, I I, I definitely appreciate more of the the smaller character jokes that work in context of what our characters are doing that tie into the plot more. Like I, I even liked more of the stuff. I mean, speaking specifically of that scene, I liked more with just kind of those guys interacting with Naven Mm -hmm. as they were talking to him and he realized who they were and he was trying to figure out a plan. Like there was, I felt there was more happening there than there was with that big payoff to that joke that just didn't work for me. Yeah, there was just like, there was more headroom in the bit that they, that I don't know if it was written out because of a lack of confidence in where they were going with it or what, but, but I'm, I'm with you. Like it felt like them just saying, Hey, do you guys want to stick around for an oven mitt? And then driving away was uh, too easy of an out. Like we yeah. we had more sort of smart comedy to run through. There's a variety of stuff that works and stuff that doesn't. And, you know, I, I think some of it might have worked better in the time. And this is something else when you are doing comedy. Inevitably, you're going to run into walls with elements that are that don't play as well as time goes on um the biggest one for me is when they get married and it's a a certified priest who turns out to be it seems like a witch doctor of some sort i'm not exactly sure um you know i it's just kind of one of those things like "Mm, okay i don't know how well that plays these days but uh but there it is um yeah, so it's always tricky trying to gauge, you know, what's really going to work over time. And I don't think it's hard to judge a film specifically on things like that, because obviously it was done in 1979 and and that's the era it was made and told. Uh, it doesn't mean that it's not harder to watch now. Yeah. Yeah, uh, you know, I would very much add to that the sniper, the guy who is picking a name out of a phone book and then going to shoot him, to attempt to shoot him with a um, automatic rifle, military-grade rifle. That doesn't hold up today. 
Yeah, it's a it's a rougher thing to kind of see and going, yeah, that's a, a harder scenario to depict uh, because of what's going on in the world. And, it, you know, plus, you know, there are it's such a random thing that is going on in that particular story thread that, you know, I, I mean, I guess the joke is, you know, he finally gets his name in print. And it's exactly the fact that his name is now print that puts him at the end of this random shooter's target. Um, so, I mean, there's some comedy in that. And obviously the big joke of, you know, he hates the cans and, yeah. you know, he's trying to get away from the cans. There's some funny in that, but it also just kind of runs itself into the ground as it kind of keeps going. on. It does. And and it does because the the funny in that is Martin's performance of it. It doesn't have to be in the context of a sniper uh, event. Uh, the funny in having his name in print could have been the whole joke. Like, that's what people remember it for. I don't think they remember, oh, my name is in print as the onset of a sea story that involves the sniper. I, I think that it, uh, I, I also think that having him run from, uh, uh, from the sniper who later in the film it turns out he's recovered and he's no longer a, a sniper he's he's actually you know a, a detective a private detective um i think is a and and the fact that it's mm at walsh is is super funny uh but did we need that transformation from him being a uh, a sniper to turning into a guy chasing you know naven for no reason do we need that to get the joke? I my argument is we didn't. I think we can get rid of all of that, and it's the movie still holds up and is still funny, and we could still find some reason to have uh, Naven be chased by the private detective uh, without having that that beat. Uh, oh, I'm reformed. That that's an unbelievable circumstance, and it makes this movie immediately dated and not timeless, as some of the other jokes in it are. Well, and plus, you know, it's it's a sign that, you know, joke like that, like, I barely even remember where the resolution ended with it. It's so it just is like it that just kind of tells me it didn't it, it falls flat, yeah. right? It doesn't it doesn't hold up as much as kind of the absurdity of a man, you know, <laughs> trying yeah. to kill him. But he thinks that he just hates the cans. Right, right. Yeah. And, so. and I think, you know, I don't know, maybe there's maybe there's some other way to get to do the the can joke. I don't know. I'm it's I like the way he speaks. He hates the cans like that. That's funny. The delivery is funny. It doesn't have to be cans. You know, he hates my pants. That's the same thing. Write a joke about pants. <laughs> uh, so anyway, that was hard. It felt it feels completely shoehorned in and it it distracts from the movie today. What did you think of the relationships that uh, Naven falls into? First with the uh, the the circus bike stunt lady, and then Bernadette. Uh, I by, uh, or Bernadette, <laughs> Bernadette as, Peters, Marie. as Marie. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. first of all, the the bike relationship I think is fantastic. I love her outfit. I love the fact that she's. Uh, she's a, a sociopath and a masochist. It's Patty. Patty. Patty, that's Bernstein. right. Patty Bernstein, played by Caitlin Adams. Uh, I think she's, uh, I, I, it actually works for me. It's a bit that works for me. I mean, I think Patty's, you know, it's the catcher in the rye role, right? Where we put this incredibly off the charts, uh, naive kid uh, in with the much more sophisticated woman who is way off the charts 
quote sophisticated in the movie. I mean, she's wearing the outfit with the like stegosaurus fin on her back, which I think is brilliant costume work. <laughs> and, and so for me, the outrageousness of that relationship actually does work. Does it does that one work for you? It it does. I mean, it's it's a little absurd, but I I think that it's fun in context yeah. of the film. You know, it's it's just kind of a silly relationship. But again, that's the sort of stuff that I think works better than, you know, let's, you know, pull the, you know, side off of a church. And, mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I, I I think that it handled itself better. And uh, it was actually a nice resolution to that involving Marie mm-hmm. as uh, as we see Patty find the two of them and then Marie belts her. And that's kind of the end of that relationship. Yeah. Which was uh, something lovely. that I wasn't expecting. So, yeah. Right. It's a, it was funny and it was a surprise. And that's exactly what we want out of movies like these, like turn us in a new direction. Um, yeah. So regarding uh, Marie, I think a, a lot of my affinity for this movie is because of my unyielding affection for Bernadette Peters and her incredible career. Um, and to see her in this movie, she's just still so charming and sweet and beautiful and talented. And, uh, as Carol Burnett says, you just show up here with your curly hair and your tiny little mouth. And it's just, that's exactly it. She is, uh, she's, she's one of those like, um, constantly sort of surprising performers uh, for me. And and the fact that this is, that we get to see her so many times in movies yet to come uh, makes me very, very excited. Yeah, she is somebody who I, I feel like I haven't seen a ton of movies with her, but I certainly have always liked her. And I believe uh, the first time I saw Into the Woods was the, uh, the you know, the, the, filmed version of her stage performance which was uh you know just fantastic she's kind of for me was kind of iconic in in that film as the witch well that one uh, was for me too and in fact i actually at the uh, denver center theater the one of the touring productions after it left broadway she stayed on as the witch and she traveled through denver that was the first time i saw into the ooh. woods live it was bernadette peters in the role that she originated and she has been so, become such uh, a an icon of uh you know live performances of stephen sondheim it, it is uh, just a real treat to have that to look back on. Uh, she's she is so good. Seven Tony nominations, two wins, nine Drama Desk Award nominations, winning three. Four of her Broadway cast albums have won Grammys. Uh, she is uh, she's just she's fantastic. She is, and it's funny because you look at her film career, and it's not that big. Or, I mean, it's it's a decent swath of films, but largely it's stuff that you don't think of as a great opportunity for her. You know, you're like, oh, okay, maybe she was just in that one for the money. Mm-hmm. You know, just stuff like, you know, and and a lot of it, especially later in his in her career, is stuff that seems like it was for the kids. Um, so. I, I really am glad that I did my introduction to her really kind of was into the woods mm-hmm. and and then seeing her in films because she's just she is somebody that you just really can just fall for because she's just a really fantastic performer. She's great here. I really like her in the role. I will tell you, though, I I struggle with their relationship early on because I feel like it happens really quick. And I know it's a movie. Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. 
But we go from them kind of meeting and all this stuff to suddenly then we have this, you know, kind of this meet cute song where they're singing on the beach together and stuff. And it just it, that seemed really kind of quick and a, a, a quick turn for me to all of a sudden be at that point. And I don't know if that's because the, the, the two of them having a duet on the beach happened so quickly in context of their meeting or because I feel like perhaps I'm just struggling with the fact that this song might not feel like it fits with everything else going on in this crazy movie. Okay. Um, well, I would counter with you shut your mouth. It's perfect. <laughs> the song is perfect. I'm just saying. <laughs> Um, uh, but I, I appreciate that you feel that way. I, okay. <laughs> All right. Let me take a step. I got to take a step back. Hold on. <laughs> let me gather myself. I uh, love this song. Yeah. Trust. I love the song. I love the two of them performing it. It just comes out of left field in this particular movie. Okay. All right. This is, this is hard for me to say. <sighs> Given that we've already established that part, one of the challenges of this movie is it's joke a minute or joke a page pace. Um, the fact that this movie transitions to this scene and moves to a, a tone or a mood of sweetness with jokes that are so phenomenally subtle and ab- abstract that require a level of uh, sort of greater awareness of the audience, um, it, I think it demonstrates a couple of things. First of all, I would say it is a it foreshadows some of Steve Martin's you know, better, smarter comedy to come when later in his career. Um, and I think it it is him trying to shoehorn some of that sensitivity and sensibility into this movie in a place where it <clears throat> grudgingly might not work for the broadness of the of the tone of the film overall. And when he talks about it, he said, this is one of my very favorite scenes in the movie, which lets you think it, it reminds you that this might be a kill your darlings kind of moment, that maybe this was one that that he should have taken out, especially when he says at the premiere, uh, it, you know, I was very excited for people to get to this moment. And uh, in fact, this is when everybody stood up to go to the bathroom like this is it, it was not received well, even though for me, it's one of my very favorites. So. And I think that all makes sense. Yeah. You know, it's it's a tricky thing to kind of shoehorn into this. But on the other side of that, maybe it needed to be done for Martin and for his career so that he could have what we'll talk about next week with his very next film, Pennies from Heaven, and just kind of the direction of his career in general and the and the variety of things that he would take. So it's an interesting thing that I think is a great moment. It's a great scene. I think it hurts this film, but I think it is a boost in his career. All right. That's fair. I I do want to say, so we don't have to change gears dramatically later, just two little stories about this particular scene. Uh, First, uh, Martin was actually playing a Martin ukulele, uh, Martin, the classic, uh, you know, guitar company. And uh, it is a beautiful little ukulele. He's, he was very proud of it. And he learned this song uh, to to play it. He, he said he learned to, u- to play the ukulele for this bit, uh, which wasn't much of a stretch. He was already an exceptional banjo player. He picked that up when he was 17. Uh, so that wasn't a stretch. But he he says, I learned to play it 
for the bit. I can't remember if I was playing it live or not, but if you listen carefully at the end of the scene, after they have their little exchange uh, in the cove on the sand, apparently when he stands up, you hear a crack. Uh, and that is the sound of him actually standing up on the Martin and crushing it. And that apparently made it into the scene. I haven't ever actually noticed it beyond what sounds like environmental sound, but I find that's funny and sad as somebody who has a Martin guitar. It, it crushes <laughs> me a little bit. And Bernadette Peters, this is the thing I learned new. Bernadette Peters actually plays the trumpet and that's still not her uh, because she's so amazing. She plays the trumpet. All of the fingerings are correct. And she tried uh, as much as she could to get uh, Reiner to let her play it live and he would not uh, or play it on the soundtrack and he he never gave. So it's not actually her playing, but she could have done it. And that just makes me love her even more. <laughs> One more reason. One to love more, do we need any more reasons to love Bernadette? Ugh. The song is, of course, Tonight You Belong to Me, which uh, is a, an oldie. It was written in 1926 by Billy Rose and composer Lee David. And, uh, yeah, this was one of many recordings of that particular song, which has been done over and over again. It's one of those films, those songs that my daughter connected with on like some, I don't know, Instagram feed, listening to some people doing a duet of it. And, you know, it's, it's funny how cycle things like this cycle and how, yeah, where people end up connecting with it. Christina Perry has a great version of it that we listen to around here. It's it's one of my favorites. And you know, this is one of those things that I watch this movie and I think, look at look at where this movie has ended up paying dividends later. Like you're going to tell me that this is not um, a, a something that was inspirational to Tom Hanks standing on the trunks and singing, uh, you know, the cowboy song like that is that's that that moment in Joe versus Volcano is this moment in the jerk. It's that sweet slowdown moment that allows you to showcase a different kind of comedy, something that's going to let you laugh using different muscles to slow down, to find a little bit of peace and get a sweeter sense when she picks up a trumpet. Why should she have a trumpet on the beach? for this one song like what is that setup that you could possibly imagine it's got a, a sort of a Monty python-esque obscurity to it and yet it it just really works for me it works it hits me right in the heart and i i love laughing with my heart you know sometimes it's it's better than laughing with my gut <laughs> that's true that's true i have to uh backtrack to a, a question that i did have why is this film called the jerk <laughs> Like, does it work for you as a title? Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> no, this is kind of the age old question, right? Um, it's oh, it's a struggle. Steve Martin said that the title grew out of his conversations with Carl Reiner. Yeah. He said it needed to be something short. You'd have the feeling of an epic tale like Dostoevsky's The Idiot, but not that like The Jerk. Um. I think the idiot would have worked better. He's not really a jerk, except at the very end when he points out the fact that he was a jerk to Marie and she left him um, when he went broke. And uh, but that was it. That was the only time. And I'm like, I don't know if this title really works that well for me. I, I don't know. I really struggle that the film is called The Jerk. And it's really one point where he's 
acting like yeah jerk. he he becomes a jerk and i think there isn't enough jerk to have earned the title and in fact i think you're absolutely right the idiot is much better had it not been taken by a uh, quite a grand <laughs> piece but um i i struggle with that too it it conveys too much of a sense of malice that is never uh really earned in in the movie until again the very end um and and it's you know he was a jerk but uh, i don't know i i guess i i could see from the character's perspective if he feels like a jerk it, it's not earned enough from the audience's perspective i guess that's it yeah it really kind of struggles yeah but yeah. how'd you feel about the the voiceover stuff i mean it brings us in and it takes us out yeah, this it's one of those devices that i felt like i can see first time screenwriter steve martin employing it i mean he he came up with this story idea because the whole i was born a poor black child was part of his stand-up mm-hmm. and he kind of took that and kind of formed it and i think once you say that it really becomes something that needs voiceover or narration because of that first person perspective that you're all of a sudden getting and i think that he was just he ended up kind of going with it i don't think it needed it at all i think you could have done this whole thing without it and it would have been just fine. Um, it was really, it felt like only to just use the line, um, you know, I was born a poor black child, um, because you need him saying that, yeah. uh, you know, narrating it. Um, I don't know. It's uh, the the one element that I did like with it is that it treats the camera as the audience and as it's, as it's kind of, uh, you know, it's our surrogate, it's our eyes, and he's talking directly to us. And there's that element that I kind of, it works a little bit, you know. Um, it's, I don't know, I, I it's never my favorite storytelling style, um, but it's okay. It's okay here, I guess. In, in this case, I feel like it's opening a fable, a fairy tale, you know. It's as, it's as useful as, um, I, I don't know, as, as a book opening, you know. It, it could have been an opening of a leather-bound book with the words on the first page, I was born a poor black child, ellipsis, turn the page again, and we move into the page and we're on the front porch. You know, like we really, we really didn't need the voiceover. And I think because it's an easy thing to solve and it resolves the, the, the challenge of having a voiceover throughout the film, um, and, and allows us to let go of that trope. I I think that's, that is one thing that I feel like is, is always bugged me a little bit because I just, I'm not a fan of the voiceover. So, and it's the type of voiceover that I think is, um, it's a fairly common uh, film trope when they use this type of narration where you get the, you know, it starts with the person in kind of not quite the end of the film, but close to it. They're basically, they're at the end of Act Two. Mm-hmm. You're watching, you're coming into the person at their low point. They tell you the story that catches you up to their low point, and then you join them as the rest of the story continues, and they find their way through the ending, and everything is happy. Right. That is a very common storytelling kind of flashback style used in plenty of films and uh you know i think that for our saturday matinee lists that certainly is an option we could throw in there as something because it it is common enough where i feel like we could probably find a good number of them to Mm -hmm. talk about it's just it's one of those things that i think has become 
uh, I don't know. It's it's an easy fallback position. You know, we talked a lot about getting it made already, and and kind of where Martin was and and Reiner was when they came into the film. But uh, you want to talk a little bit about the Aspen Film Society? Aspen Film Society. You'll see that at the beginning of this that uh, was credited as being involved in this. This was a film of the Aspen Film Society. It was formed by Steve Martin and record producer William E. McEwen. Um, they had backing from Paramount, and uh, and then that, as I said, shifted over to Universal. They, uh, under the banner of Aspen Film Society, they made this, and they made um, kind of a few of Steve Martin's films. Um, actually, not all of them, but uh, Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid, The Man With Two Brains, The Lonely Guy. So uh, three more that we're going to be talking about. And then Pee-wee's Big Adventure. And they kind of did a few other films. And uh, as of 1990, that was kind of the end of it. But what I thought was interesting is uh, one of the first projects, in fact, the first project they did, which is something that I'd love to track down. It was a short film that Steve Martin starred in, along with Terry Garr and Buck Henry, called The Absent-Minded Waiter. He wrote it, and Carl Gottlieb directed it. It was nominated for Best Live Action Short at the Academy Awards. And uh, that was kind of a, a thing that helped Martin, along with his comedy career, kind of get going. And uh, after uh, Annie Hall did really well at the Oscars the same year, um, I guess comedy was, you know, in at the moment. And that is what spurred Universal to give Steve Martin $500,000 to write in and star, to write and star in this film. Uh, I, I do a shout out to Jackie Mason as Harry Hartunian at the gas station. I like Jackie Mason. What are you going to say? That's it. You know, yeah, I like him. It, it, there's a, a a cast of nice people, and in fact, even Carl Reiner pops in as the uh, as the director. Yeah, celebrity Carl Reiner. Exactly, and he does a great job of being cross-eyed. <laughs> <laughs> he does. He does. It's funny. I kept thinking. I'm like. That's a great idea for glasses. Yeah, it is a great idea. And then, yeah, you, of all people, I'm surprised you don't, you haven't welded something to your eyes. But now I'm glad you didn't. Right. Glad you didn't. <laughs> uh, any sequels and remakes, Andy? It did have a TV sequel, The Jerk 2. And it's uh, it's like Teen Wolf 2. It's The Jerk, comma, T-O-O. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> yes, yes. Steve Martin produced it. It uh, He did not write it, nor did he star in it. Mark Blankfield starred as Naven. And uh, Mark Blankfield is a name that I'm not really familiar with, although he was in uh, Robin Hood Men in Tights. So what? we have talked about it. That's right. What? That's right. What, he was. was he now in now that? I, I can't remember who he was. He was Blinken. Oh, of course he okay. No, of course. The, oh, those... Blinken is what the uh, the blind yes. assistant, That's right? right. Yeah. Or the blind, yeah. So, uh, yeah, he uh, was in that. He was in uh, Dracula Dead and Loving It and Jekyll and Hyde Together Again and The Incredible Shrinking Woman. Uh, he popped up in Night Court, Saved by the Bell, Sledgehammer, Arrested Development. He's, you know, he's, he's been busy. He has been busy. That one, uh, the show, it looks like, principally directed by uh, Michael Schultz, who is behind The Last Dragon. Mm. Mm. lots of tv 
This is the plot, as a, according to Wikipedia. Navin Johnson sets out to attend the wedding of Marie, his pen pal in California. A totally different story there. But runs into a gang of hobos led by a schemer named Diesel. D- Diesel discovers Navin's skill at playing poker and takes Navin to Las Vegas, where they win enough to travel to Los Angeles in style. It's a real journey story. Yeah. Yeah. You know, everybody's uh, got to work, I but know. I got to tell you, looking again at Mike Schultz, this guy, <laughs> this guy's directed some of the funniest stuff on TV. He's been involved in uh, heavily involved directing episodes of Chuck and Brothers and Sisters and Dirty Sexy Money and uh, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend and uh, Arrow, directed a bunch of episodes of Arrow and Blackish and New Girl, one of my favorites. Uh, also behind the current show, uh, Black Lightning. Uh He's he's got a ton of stuff, so it's you know, that's not a bad way to go. Who is this? The guy who uh, is listed as uh, directing uh, the Jerk Two, Mike Schultz. Oh, okay, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. That's a real something. Yep. Keep him busy. Keep him busy. Yeah, keep it him does. Busy. It does land at a two point six on the IMDb scale, so <laughs> it's below the bar. A little bit, a little bit, but it's almost so below the bar that it does make you yeah. wonder: will I will I laugh because it's so bad? Yeah, or is might. it just so bad? You might. Good people. Uh, people got to work. People got to feed their families. Everybody needs dental. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Right. How about awards? It's a tricky genre. Comedy is a tricky thing to kind of get awards. Um, however, there are awards out there for it. Um, unfortunately, this didn't get any of them. It did, however, get one nomination at the Stinker Bad Movie Awards. Oh, Apparently, no. uh, Yeah, they were up there with the... Uh, the Golden Raspberries, uh, Stinker Bad Movie Awards. They got a nomination for Worst On-Screen Couple, Steve Martin and Bernadette Peters, which makes me sad yeah. that it, they would nominate the two of them for it. They lost, however, to Barbara Streisand and Ryan O'Neill in the main event. Ryan O'Neill could be a couple <laughs> with anyone in my book. <laughs> wow. Uh, well, I guess I guess I can see a Ryan O'Neill series coming up. <laughs> That's uh, that's he's dreamy. he's dreamy. That's real trouble for uh, uh, Martin and Peters. That makes me sad. I'm glad they continued to work together a little bit, and uh, I'm excited. How to do at the box office? Did it make anything? Well, Reiner did have a decent budget for this comedy: four million dollars, or fourteen point one million in today's dollars. The Jerk opened December 14th, 1979, opposite Spielberg's 1941 <laughs> and Neil Simon's Chapter 2. A lot of numbers. Wow. Yeah. The movie did exceptionally well for itself, earning back $73.7 million domestically, or $260.1 million in today's dollars, landing it in the eighth place for highest grossing films of the year. That gave Steve Martin a great start for his screen career with the film coming in with an adjusted profit per finish minute of $2.6 million. That's pretty good. That's a great way to start. Wow. Nice job, Steven. Especially considering the direction he'll take. He was up against (laughs) 1941, that classic. Uh, yes, yes. Uh, it, that's, uh, we were just talking about that on Discord, 1941. Uh, Toshiro yeah. Mifune ended up in that one. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Yeah. Real yeah. classic. Oh, this, uh, yeah. Power. Yeah, hitters. it was, I don't know. It was, it was one of those movies that, um, uh, that it really connected with people at the time. You know, I mean, it's, it's, uh, interesting looking at the top 10. Kramer versus Kramer was number one. 
Amityville Horror number two, Rocky two number three, then Apocalypse Now, Star Trek the Motion Picture. We've talked about, uh, and then Alien. 10, The Jerk, Moonraker, The Muppet Movie. We've talked about uh, Kramer versus Kramer, Rocky II, Apocalypse Now, Star Trek, Alien, The Jerk. Mm-hmm. We've talked about a lot of the top 10 movies, uh, the highest grossing films of 1979 on this show. So 1941 is next. <laughs> Let's do it. We're finally going to do it. Uh, and then 10. <laughs> Get a little Bo Derrick in. Oh, oh dear, Andy. <laughs> oh, we have to talk about that. <laughs> Uh, that piano solo at the top of the cliff. Uh, I have crazy. never seen it, so I can't speak to that. <gasps> what? Andy? Oh, he's amazing. Oh, it's great. I, we got to do it. We got to do it. I feel like... We gotta, no, so I stop. feel like you need to put this on a guilty pleasure list, because I don't know if mm. it should be a film that <laughs> we regularly include. Got to do it. Got to do it. Oh, yeah. It's going to be the new it's going to be the new 10 blocker. It'll be right in the middle. I'm sure you're going to love it, but just enough. Yeah, no, I'm pretty I'd excited. I'd rather talk about, about the Amityville Horror. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> Interestingly enough, okay. James Brolin and Margot Killer <laughs> or Margot Kidder also nominated for worst <laughs> on-screen couple of the year. <laughs> okay, I can see that. <laughs> Okay, okay, okay. I this was super fun to revisit. I recognize it's got some issues. We'll call this a, a love with some quibbles for me. I, it's a treat to see Steve Martin. He's definitely a fish out of water in just about every context you can put him. He doesn't look the part. He he's weird acting in the part, and yet that adds to its charm for me. So uh, I'm in favor of it, uh, e- even with some things that I think are now in bad taste. Yeah, there there is charm here to be found, and Steve Martin is largely the reason. So. Um, even if I didn't like the film, it has its moments. Well, you're a gracious critic. <laughs> I thank you. <laughs> Let's take it to Flickchart. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. You'll see all the movies we've talked about on this very show. Uh, and if you swipe over in your show notes, you can tap on the word Flickchart. It'll take you to this movie where you can sign up, add this to your account, start ranking it, and see how it stacks up against ours. First up, we have this jerk. Or scanners. 100% scanners. Oh. <laughs> How well, funny that this is where we kick I off. Know. Unbelievable. <laughs> it's the jerk. Totally the jerk. All right. Here we go. Here, top half or bottom half? Here we go. One, One two, two, three. Scissors. 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 Oh, I knew it. I knew it as I said it. <laughs> All right, next up, The Jerk or Shivers. You have to know, this does not belong in the bottom half of our chart. You know that. It really does. You are a horrible man. (laughs) I've resorted to personal insults. That's right. That's that's what it's come to. (laughs) Okay. Uh, The Jerk or Shivers. Uh, Well, I'm going to stick with The Jerk on this one. (sighs) Yeah, I'll go with The Jerk. All right. The Jerk or Ocean's 12? I'll definitely say Ocean's 12. Well, we get some Carl Reiner. I'll give you Ocean's 12. That's right. The Jerk or Lupin the Third, The Castle of Cagliostro? The Jerk. Lupin the Third. <gasps> One, two, three, three scissors. Paper. Really? Ugh. Fate. Step in. The Jerk or Compulsion? I will take Compulsion. Compulsion. The Jerk or The Host? I will take The, the host, host. The Host, The Host, The Host. The Jerk or Christmas in July? The Jerk. I'll, I'll take Christmas in July. All right. 
You can have it. Oh, thank you. Mm-hmm. It's Christmas. The jerk or the stripes. I'll take the oh, jerk. Oh, no. <sighs> okay, the jerk. <laughs> the jerk or la femme Nikita. La femme Nikita. La femme Nikita, please. Well, that puts the jerk at 318 on our chart. 318 out of 426. That is too low, and you broke it. That's all my fault. It is all your fault. Where did it end up on your personal list? On my personal list, almost the same percentage, uh, 3259 out of 4225, or about 23% on my chart. Well, I'm on the other end of your chart. It is 258 out of 1414, and uh, that's an 82%. If we're going by the algorithm uh, to head over to flickchart.com or to letterbox.com slash the next reel, this should be a four-star movie, and that's exactly where it is. Four stars in a heart, please, Andy. I have a hard time getting above two with this one. Um, I, I definitely acknowledge there are a lot of things that the people who have grown up with it can continue to enjoy. But for me, yeah. watching it the first time, I, it's just not there for me. It has its moments and it has its charm. So it's it's got a heart for me, but it still is at two stars. Fair enough. That gives us a three. I'm okay yeah, with that. Three stars and a heart. Mm-hmm. All right. It's still fine. Well, it, it's a nice start to our uh, Steve Martin uh, playlist here. Where do we go from here? We're not going too far. We are just going to be jumping uh, just a, a couple years forward. And we're going to be looking at uh, the next film in Steve Martin's career, which is a very big shift. It is uh, it is Pennies from Heaven, also with Bernadette Peters. I love Bernadette Peters. Have I talked about that yet? You have. You might have mentioned it. You might have mentioned it. This will you know, not be. This two will not Tony be. Tony wins. She has two Tonys <laughs> and seven nominations. Bernadette Peters. Uh, she's she is talented. She is talented. Mm-hmm. We'll have other talented people in this one too, like Christopher Walken and Jessica Harper. Uh, it's directed by Herbert Ross. This is not a return yet for Carl Reiner. He will be back after this one. But this will be an interesting one because it's kind of a, a little bit more of a romantic drama musical. I love it. Fantasy. Can't wait to talk thing. about it. Can't. Have you seen it? I have seen it. Oh. Yes. 17 times? I've seen or it. just And now. then I just rewatched it in prep okay. for the show. All right. Good. Uh, well, this will be great. Um, and we don't have any other, as we're doing this, do I have any other events to talk about? Nope. Mm, nope. Although yesterday was my birthday. So that was something. What? Yeah. Oh, in context of when it's released. Mm-hmm. You're throwing me off. I was like, what? How did I just miss your birthday? <laughs> You're like way too, way too smart thinking into the future like that. I know. Look at me. Happy Mr. birthday. Smarty. Thanks, Andy. <laughs> when the movie ends, the conversation begins. Amazon giveth, Andy. As Amazon always doeth. Oh, Amazon. Okay. Well, we got some. I don't know. Did you stay at Amazon or did you go see what the kids were doing? I bailed. I'm checking on the kids. 
Okay. Well, uh, I can't wait to hear what you say. Do you mind if I go first this time? I've got Take one that away. I think sets the stage. It's from 2012, uh, and it is from Bichet or Bichette. And uh, it says here, this is, um, well, it's just, a sign. I'm going to call this a sign of the times. My new jerk VHS tape broke the first time I tried to play it. Never got to see any part of it because the tape pulled out. It's very disappointing. I was going to show it to someone who'd never seen the movie. I guess I'll go rent it at Blockbuster. All You advertise the VHS as being uncut as opposed to the DVDs. That's why I ordered VHS tapes. Also, the DVD was advertised as only one left. Well, now there's still only one left, but the price went up to $10. What a scam. Most disappointing in VHS first time played, February seventeenth, two thousand twelve. That is all. Oh, people! That is all. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. So good. All right. All right. What What do the kids say? I've got a kid, a ten-year-old kid, who, uh, yeah, and just to just to um, uh, start this off with a little uh, information that we didn't provide earlier. This film was rated R by the Motion Picture Association of America. So Mm, keep that in mind. We should have started that. This kid, 10 years old, says it's for 11 and up, gives it three out of five, and says should be PG. My brother and his girlfriend watched this movie, but I refused to see it. Not that it seemed bad, but just not interesting to me. I heard lots of laughing from my family. It seemed as if they had enjoyed it. I came in later at the movie. And it just seemed really boring to me. Three stars. <laughs> <laughs> three stars for coming for, for a percentage of the movie. A percentage of the movie earned three stars. And clearly enough to determine it should be PG what? and it's for ages 11 and up. <laughs> totally. Watch a little more, kids. See what you think. <laughs> Thanks, Amazon. You know what I got the other day, Pete? Stephen King's latest. Want to borrow it? Do you know who you're talking to? What do you mean? Andy, when's the last time I read a paper book? It's been like decades. I would much rather use Kindle, or better yet, Audible. What am I thinking? I don't read paper books anymore either. I am an audiobook guy all the way. For those of you looking to listen to the books behind the films we talk about here on The Next Reel, get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at thenextreel.com slash audible. Okay, we're going to play a little game. I'm going to name a series from season nine, and you try to guess how many movies from it were adaptations. Ooh, this should be fun. <laughs> we're starting with the big series, Robin Hood. <laughs> well, I mean, aren't they all based on some Robin Hood story in one way or another? Yes, but any idea which specifically? Uh, well, I'd say uh, Douglas Fairbanks and Robin Hood, the silent one, The Adventures of Robin Hood, Disney's Robin Hood, that terrible 1991 Robin Hood, and Ridley Scott's Robin Hood, they're all based on, I would say, probably the same standard tale. Robin and Marion, I would say, is probably based on a different take. Uh, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, too. Oh, God, I can't believe I forgot that one. Okay, how about Spike Lee? Uh, aren't they all original? No, n- not one we covered this season. It's a biopic. Oh, Black Klansman! can't believe I forgot that. We have covered so many great movies that all started as books. Books like The Spy Who Came In From The Cold, The Little Drummer Girl, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, Europa Europa, Spore, or Arsenic and Old Lace. So many great movies from so many great sources, and they're all on Audible. Producing this podcast is a lot of fun, but takes a lot of time. We've dropped the dynamically inserted ads because they're so annoying and have no connection to our content. Plus, they just jam those things in wherever they see fit. We listened to you when you said you didn't like them. 
So now we're directly appealing to you, our dear listener. Please consider an Audible subscription to help support The Next Reel and our family of podcasts. I have been using Audible along with my family for decades now. I love it, and I have read hundreds of books through it. I couldn't be more pleased with their service, and I know you'll love it too. Head to thenextreel.com slash audible and get your free trial. It really helps us out, and you have a world of over 200,000 audiobooks open to you. So much great material available. Dive in with a free 30-day trial at thenextreel.com slash audible. Start listening to amazing audiobooks of your favorite movie source material with your first free audiobook today. That's thenextreel.com slash audible.